الجزيرة بودكاست. The U.S. launched its so-called war on terror in the wake of 9/11. Invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq followed with a huge loss of life. Instability spread across many parts of the Middle East. So, what's been the true impact of this so-called war? I'm Nastasia Tay, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's now bring in our guests in New York. Stephanie Saville, the co-director of The Costs of War, a, non- a non-partisan research project based at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University and an author of the report. In Manchester, in the United Kingdom, Ruba Ali Al-Hassani, a postdoctoral research fellow at Lancaster University and also co-founder of the Iraqi Women Academics Network. And in Bethesda, Maryland, Michael O'Hanlon, a senior fellow and director of research and foreign policy at the Brookings Institution. A very warm welcome to all of you and thanks for joining us today on Inside Story. Steph, this is your report, so I'll start with you. More than 4.5 million deaths, that's a really startling number. It's obviously something very difficult to quantify. How did you get to that number? Yeah, this is something that uh, the Cost of War Project has been working on for years. Actually, I've been I've built on the work of colleagues of mine at the Cost of War Project for a long time. My colleague Nita Crawford has generated a uh, regularly updated estimate of what direct deaths. So these are people who are killed through the weapons of war, through fire, the actual combat of war. Uh, that now is up to uh, 906,000 to 937,000. That's the range that she estimates uh, of direct deaths. So my report builds on that. It uses a ratio from the Geneva Declaration Secretariat that uh, current day wars there's an estimate of about uh, four indirect deaths for every direct death. Um, I dug in very deeply to research across many fields, including epidemiology and public health research. And basically, this is the best latest information that's out there. Ideally, in an ideal scenario, there would be teams of researchers on the ground, local researchers doing excess mortality studies, at going you know house house to house, doing a sur- surveys of you know who's died in the past X number of years to get a better, more precise figure. But in the absence of those studies, and those are really hard to do in war zones, there's a, a you know absence of, of birth and death uh, certificates and and all of, of those sorts of basic. Uh, census data. Um, this kind of ratio is the is the best that's out there. So um, that was how we generated the 4.5 tri- uh, million figure. Uh, well, the so-called war on terror itself is a bit of a nebulous concept. Can I ask Stephanie how you chose the conflicts that you've included? Yes, absolutely. This is something also drawing on this cost of war project framing. So this is a you know over 60 scholars at this point from around the world. What we've done is we've said. You know, the U.S. counterterrorism has played a role not just in Afghanistan, Pakistan and Iraq. Um, Those were, you know, the U.S. led wars in those places, but also a very significant role in Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Mm -hmm. Libya. Um, and other places increasingly, the footprint of the U.S. War, so-called war on terror uh, it continues. And um, so this is really a framing that tries to look very comprehensively at 
you know, of course, these conflicts are incredibly complex. We're not saying that the U.S. is the only responsible party. We're mm -hmm. merely pointing to the fact that there's been an intensification of the violence as a result of U.S. counterterrorism efforts. And this report is really an attempt to come to terms and grapple with that sense of responsibility. Sure. Uh, Ruba, I understand you were born in the diaspora, but you've been working with people in Iraq on the ground there for many years. Do any of these numbers surprise you? No, the numbers are not surprising. They're damning, if anything. Uh, and I am tempted to think that the numbers may be even higher, uh, that these may be, um, for the lack of a better word, conservative maybe, or just like Stephanie said, that you know, there are many deaths that are unrecorded. There are many missing people who are unrecorded. Um, I'm currently working on a project on enforced disappearances in Iraq. So that's another issue that has been um, a tremendously um, problematic um, aspect of life that many Iraqis have had to endure since 2003. Uh, so the numbers make sense. And I assume that they're much more, especially in countries like Afghanistan and in Syria now with its own conflict going on. Uh, Michael, turning to you, I know that you've previously said that the so-called war on terror, for all of its failures, has had a number of limited successes, accidental as some of them may actually be. But that success, as you've described it, I understand, has been specifically around preventing attacks on American soil. But this is then the trade-off, right? 4.5 million deaths? First of all, let me congratulate Stephanie and her colleagues at the Watson Center. They've done very good work over the years at reminding us that we have to take a broader perspective in understanding the consequences of war. And I generally agree with most of the methodologies. We can talk about some specifics in a minute, but let me make that point. Second, you're correct to argue or to, to summarize the writings that I've done to say that when we think about a 22-year campaign against you know, Salafism or however you'd like to describe the broader Al-Qaeda and related movements around the world, the United States and its Western allies have generally been fairly fortunate in that the number of subsequent attacks on American or even European soil has been quite modest compared to the fears we all had after 9-11. And of course, there have been some attacks, most notably some of the ISIS attacks in Europe in the middle part of the last decade. But generally speaking, if you want to do a plus minus cost benefit assessment, of the so-called war on terror, which may not be a good term, but um, you know is often still employed, then I think we have to say that Western countries have done pretty well at protecting themselves, certainly from anything like the catastrophic terror we saw on 9-11. And then even in Spain in 2004 or London in 2005, some of the other uh, attacks or in Bali, Indonesia uh, in 2002. Sure. But I, you do very well, and Stephanie does very well, uh, as well as our colleague in London, to remind people, uh, and of course, in the broader Middle East, people need no reminding, that these wars have had huge human consequences. And that war itself, because it breaks down society, because it breaks down healthcare, it impedes proper nutrition, uh, it impedes economic growth, it therefore contributes to a lot of indirect deaths that wind up outnumbering direct combat deaths. And Stephanie's right, just to remind people, it's roughly this four to one ratio. That's a very crude and rough number. It's, a, it's an average across many different countries, many different conflicts. But the general message is correct, that war leads to far more indirect 
consequences than we even see directly on our TV screens. And that's a tragedy of conflict. It should make anyone wary of war. The, the one last thing I'll say, however, is that bearing in mind that the Iraq of Saddam Hussein was hardly a peaceful place, bearing in mind that the Afghanistan of the Taliban was hardly a successful country uh, and is hardly successful today, that these excess deaths that we're talking about often would have been occurring even without the U.S.-led interventions. And I know Stephanie is quick to underscore that she's not simply blaming the United States or its broader war on terror for all of these casualties. But I do want to underscore that when we think about excess deaths, having looked at, again, Iraq under Saddam in his quarter century of terrible rule, or the Taliban in Afghanistan with the kind of healthcare systems and oppression of women's rights and limitations on economic progress that they imposed, uh, it's not as if these places would have had peaceful and happy futures if they had been left on their own trajectories. Uh, the last point I would say, however, is that Libya strikes me as a place that probably would have done better without us, mm -hmm. that probably would have truly been, despite Muammar Gaddafi's limitations and, and uh, his own barbaric acts at times against his own people, Libya was a semi-functioning country during his rule, and it's been worse since our 2011 intervention. So again, we have to bear down case sure. by case, but I, I agree I, with the overall thrust. Thank I you. I want to bring Ruba in here because it looked very much like she wanted to respond to you there, Michael. I think the key point, and what Michael has said, is that the West has been capable of protecting itself. That's the key word, itself, um, because... Since 2003, not just Iraq and Afghanistan, but the entire Middle East and uh, parts of uh, Southwest uh, Asia have been um, unprotected and have been violated over and over in various ways, uh, whether it's murder or rape or torture or continued uh, legacy uh, and reverberations of this violence that continues in many, uh, various forms. Till this day, children are born in Fallujah and Basra in Iraq with co uh, congenital birth defects because of white phosphorus uh, use uh, and depleted uranium in Iraq. Those are, you know, weapons uh, like white phosphorus is an illegal uh, use. Um, sorry, it's an illegal chemical um, if used in warfare. And the West has certainly protected itself, but it has. Uh, violated an entire region. Again, I have to emphasize the word violate. Abu Ghraib is a good example of violation of a country's dignity, of a country's, uh, of a people's humanity. Iraqis have been degraded and dehumanized over and over. Mm. And I cannot speak only about Iraq. Afghanis have been degraded and dehumanized over and again. The, my, the migrants and refugees from the region uh, who have traveled to the West which are now safer, um, but uh, they are once again dehumanized and degraded um, at the borders and are treated mm -hmm. as lesser beings. We have seen this happen over and over. And uh, I will go back to the term forced disappearances, because when someone is forcibly disappeared, we don't know if they're still alive or they're dead. Of course. And it has been recorded that since 2003 in Iraq, over 1 million people have been forcibly disappeared. So many of them could be still could be still alive. Many of them could, could be dead. So that's another number that could be added to this report. Um, the emphasis on 
Yeah, uh, I do want to get into the very, very pervasive legacy here of the conflicts that we're talking about in just a moment. But before we get there, I do want to just ask Stephanie about this ratio that we keep talking about, this one to four direct to indirect deaths ratio. That's a calculation by the Geneva Declaration Secretariat, a UN body, right? But that's a, that ratio of one to four, as Michael also said, varies hugely. So in more developed countries, you might have fewer indirect deaths to direct deaths, but in very vulnerable, poor populations, much huger numbers in terms of in terms of that ratio. So, really, vulnerable populations are at more risk. Stephanie, that's right. That's what I found when I dug into it. There were when I first started this project, there was some that that is an issue of some debate. Um, but what I found was that was exactly that kind of the more impoverished. Uh, a population is to begin with the worst effect the war is going to have, and and that really makes sense when you think about things like for people who are displaced forcibly by violence. Um, actually, there's a correlation of indirect death, um, not with refugees necessarily, because once people get outside their country's borders, sometimes they have more access mm -hmm. to the very minimum of food and health care, for example. But primarily for internally displaced people, IDPs, there's a, a significant correlation between higher rates of indirect death caused by war and, um, and people who are forcibly displaced within their country's borders. And these post 9-11 wars have seen millions of people displaced. Um, so so it, it's really about, you know, lack of access to some of the most basic, fundamental things that one needs to sustain health and life, like clean drinking water, access to, you know, proper sewage treatment, um, access to food, just basically food. Um, hospitals get bombed. People mm. don't have access to doctors. People don't have access to vaccinations. Um, all of these things get disrupted by war. And that's really what this paper was trying to point to is sure. there are these pathways of reverberating effects that aren't talked about enough and, and that need to be, you know, included in a frame of the cost of war. Of course. So one thing leads to another. I was surprised in reading the report how little things like, say, broken traffic lights or the state of the roads could lead to quite so many deaths when you talk about the infrastructure damage left after war. Once you think about it, it seems obvious, but I, I don't think that that's something which people necessarily calculate as, as part of the, the cost of war. 2010 to 2013 or so, there were as many, if not more, deaths from traffic fatalities as from the conflict itself because wow. of the state of the road and the traffic systems in Iraq. Well, Stephanie, one of your other findings was that when it comes to indirect deaths, that young children, very young children, suffer the most malnutrition, disease, perhaps that's not a surprise, but also women. Now, Ruba, I'm wondering if, if that resonates with the experiences of the people that you work with. Um, I, if I may revisit a point that was made earlier and then answer your question, if that's okay. Um, there was a comparison made uh, between uh, Iraq during Saddam's regime and Iraq today. And the comparison has been made many times by various people over the past few years, claiming that Iraq is a much safer place uh, today than it was during the Saddam era. That comparison, it cannot be made uh, from various reasons because 
there used to be a dictatorship, and now it's not a dictatorship by one party or one person. It is an authoritarian regime run by a number of uh, political parties that are working together towards oppressing the people. Uh, so it's not, you know, a, like in Saddam's time, one could claim that it was a stable country, and this is a claim that many have made to defend um, uh, the Ba'athist regime. But also at the same time, we have many, uh, many armed groups going around around the country, killing and kidnapping people. We have had uh, Al-Qaeda and Daesh, you know, um, kill and rape. And I need to emphasize that over 2,000 Yazidi women and girls are mm -hmm. still missing. Because of this invasion, when the U.S. went into Iraq and dissolved the U.S., uh, sorry, the Iraqi army and the, uh, the borders became porous, which invited uh, terrorist groups into Iraq. So the invasion is directly related to many um, problems that Iraqi society is experiencing and, and this that's day. not only the specific Iraqi experience, but in a number of other countries as well, where there's been yes. a number of other groups that have arisen within the space and the anti-Western sentiment that all of this has created. Now, I know that the Biden administration has been very vocal about wanting to move away from this counter-terrorism well, strategy, so to speak. Uh, Michael, I'm curious about what the feeling is like in Washington these days, because it does feel like Biden doesn't talk about the so-called war on terror anymore. The rhetoric has certainly gone that way. But at the same time, we are still seeing airstrikes. Guantanamo remains open, what, 21 years later. Is the so-called war on terror now a, a war in secret? First of all, um, let me just quickly respond to what Ruba just powerfully said. And I take her overall point very profoundly that it's hard to say the invasion of Iraq did any net good, but it is also important to bear in mind that Iraq under Saddam Hussein was a terrible place. And perhaps a million people died in the Iran-Iraq war. Now that was over before the US invasion, of course, but with Saddam Hussein still in power and his sons waiting in the wings to succeed him, it's hard to really know or believe that Iraq was headed in a peaceful or prosperous direction or even a safe place for its own people. So I would I would just keep that in mind. I'm not defending the invasion, and I'm certainly not defending the way it was done. I, I do take her points on that. In terms of whether we've now wanted to get away from this, yeah, I think you're largely right. And it's partly because there's not much to brag about, right? For all the reasons we've been discussing, these wars have not turned out well, and the Middle East is not in a better shape. Uh, it's not clear that it would have been in any better shape if we had stayed out. So, you know, the Middle East is a place where the United States and its allies remain challenged to find any policy that really contributes a net positive benefit. And sort of relative neglect seems to be perhaps, therefore, the overall approach we settle on, where we do just enough to help keep our friends like the King of Jordan uh, and uh, countries like Oman and Morocco and Israel stable and safe. And we look for the least bad way to handle Iran and for the least uh, least sort of onerous way, least demanding way to handle terrorism whenever the threats appear to be great enough that we have to go in and do something for our own well-being. But otherwise, just try to empower and, and aid our regional partners as they handle the bulk of the job. And it's a job that's clearly not yet done. And stabilizing this part of the world is clearly not yet done. So Michael, yes, we settle handling... on a policy. Sorry, Michael, you say handling the job, the bulk of the job, but also taking then the bulk of the human cost too. No doubt. Absolutely, you're correct. And, and when I say handling the job, I should be clear and fair. 
that it's not just handling al-Qaeda and ISIS. It's also just trying to stabilize their very countries. And you mentioned, uh, and Stephanie wrote about Yemen, for example. That's not necessarily a war that I blame the United States for being the primary cause of, but it's sort it's a war that should break all of our hearts as we continue to see this extremely impoverished country, which has a lot of killing going on, but even more so, a complete inability to rebuild the kind of health, Indeed. education, sanitation capabilities that are needed to keep people alive in general. And, and so there's a lot to do, not just counterterrorism. Uh, and you're right, the costs are being borne primarily by those in the region. Well, I want to take a look at how the country, well, the U.S. and all these countries can potentially move forward, but specifically in the U.S. when it comes to accountability and responsibility. Back in 2001, Congress passed the resolution, the authorization for the use of military force against those responsible for 9-11. But I believe the list of groups and individuals covered by that is still classified, so the public doesn't even know who America is actually fighting. And I know, Stephanie, you've been very explicit in your report that this isn't about allocating blame, but you do talk about a sense of moral responsibility. What do you envision that looking like? That's right. Um, and first of all, I just wanted to kind of respond to, to Michael's point to, you know, the Pentagon and the U.S. government is talking a lot about shifting strategic focus from counterterrorism to great power competition. Um, but that doesn't match the actual footprint of the U.S. counterterror apparatus, which is still in over 85 countries around the world. And what what I think we need to do is talk less about strategy and and kind of shifts that can be made and really more about the big picture questioning and big picture critical thinking about US militarism and US foreign policy which is you know it, is this does the US really have a role to play in these kinds of of um you know conflicts and and oftentimes i think even things that sound as innocuous as US security assistance um I've, I've done research on the ground in West Africa. And, you know, there the kind of funding and training and so forth for local forces that the U.S. has done has arguably intensified uh, mm -hmm. the, the violence, if anything. These are incredibly complex conflicts. So I think we need to really kind of rethink things at a really basic level. Mm -hmm. um, and, and part of that is starting to a conversation about reparations and about reconstruction and about the the imperative of humanitarian assistance right this you know given this kind of the the, the magnitude the scale the mm -hmm. scope of that and suffering that have been caused what then is a moral response uh, as, mm -hmm. you know, individual Americans, as a society, as a government, um, you know, as our, our military, what, what Stephanie, can we do? I'm, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you there, I'm sorry, because I do want to hear finally from Ruba on your idea there of reparations and reconstruction and aid. Very briefly, Ruba, would that be enough? No, uh, reparations are not enough. Um, in fact, they would open the door to reparations uh, claims from many countries around the world mm -hmm. against the U.S. for its various violations. And we also need to address what uh, U.S. foreign policy uh, means when it uses the word allies So, for or friends. So, for example, the KRG are allies and friends, um, and 
you know, today's Iraq is safer mm -hmm. than Ba'athist uh, Iraq, but today's Iraqi politicians use the same methods as the Ba'athist regime did. So they're just as cruel as Saddam's regime was. Uh, the Friends and the KRG are just as violent as the Ba'athist regime. They actually joined hands with Saddam at some mm -hmm. point. So the question is, how do you define an ally? How do you, do you define a friend? And uh, what kind of interventions are okay and what are not? I would argue that all interventions are wrong at this point. Uh, the U.S. should have learned its lesson mm -hmm. from the Iraq experience, from the Afghanistan experience. And I think we need to respect the agency of the people in these countries and their ability to fight terrorism. And when they do require assistance mm -hmm. in the war against terrorism, then we can all, you know, other countries can offer it. But reparations is one way to go, although I know, like I said, it's not going to happen, uh, not in our lifetime. Well, um, so much of this, Ruba, as you to say, is about trust and agency here. And it does feel like there is a conversation about interventionism and whether or not that's a good idea going on in Washington, D.C. We'll be following that here on Al Jazeera, but we'll have to leave our discussion there for today. Thank you to all of our guests, Stephanie Saville, Michael O'Hanlon, and Ruba Ali Al-Hassani. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Bedad Mahichi, Abla Kla, and Jimmy Ketahun. Studio sound by Rendit Kurian. This program was edited by Anil Anandan, Lin Yuan, and Joe Frias. Do be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening and do tune in again on Monday for our next one. This week on The Take. For the G7 summit, Western leaders head to Hiroshima, Japan, where an atomic bomb was dropped more than 70 years ago. Will that backdrop affect their conversations about war today? Find us wherever you get your podcasts.